The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. <clears throat> now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Between the words that are spoken and the words that are heard, may the Spirit of God be present. Amen. It is so good to be with you this morning, City Church. It's been a long time for me. Uh, as Fred said, I'm Scott Sherman from Douglasville, and you should just know, my wife only calls it Douglasville when I forget that I'm from Douglasville. <laughs> To just to remind me to stop putting on ears. Uh, but I do direct Newbigin House of Studies, which you may have heard of, you may not have heard of, uh, but we are an ecumenical study center that has been at work for a number of years to reimagine theological education and spiritual formation. Specifically, though, to try to help the church look and act more like Jesus. And uh, it was developed, it was launched right here at City Church San Francisco, something for which I will always be grateful. Uh, so it's good to be with you. Even though the you has changed a lot uh, since 16 years ago, I think, the first time I, I preached here at City Church, uh, I'm glad to see the you that is here now. So I, um, I became an Episcopal priest a while back. And I've been helping out with different congregations. And um, in one case, kind of during COVID times, I was helping out a congregation here in the city. And one of the things they requested was that I conduct a funeral. And uh, I was asked to inter the ashes of someone 
have a service during COVID, and turn someone's ashes into a church garden. The man's name was Ed. He lived for decades in the Castro, and he was known for throwing really lavish parties. Uh, so there were only a handful of us that could gather during the lockdown for this, but they had one request, and it was, Ed loved to serve lots and lots of wine at his parties, and his last wish was that we drink wine after we buried him, that we drink with him after we buried him. I agreed. <laughs> so I was kind of shocked after the brief ceremony when somebody walked to our small group in the garden and handed out these individual 16-ounce plastic bottles of blush wine. And that's when they told me, you know, what Ed really loved was what he called sweet and cheap. <laughs> so we ceremonially, uh, ceremoniously unscrewed our plastic bottles of sweet and cheap, and we all together took a big swig. And there in the silence, an older woman uttered a two-word prayer I'll never forget. Jesus Christ, <laughs> she said. I learned later she was an atheist, by the way, so I don't, let me tell you something about the nature of the prayer. But in that moment, <laughs> I had the inspiration to say, you know, I think we should honor Ed with what the Bible calls a drink offering. <laughs> and so we all promptly, without any argument, soaked his grave, and I hope his ashes, with sweet and cheap. Point of my story is, have you ever, uh, have you ever said yes to something? <laughs> Only to realize that you hadn't quite realized what you said yes to, what you agreed to. Today, I want us to reflect on Matthew's gospel uh, as a window into the life of Mary of Nazareth, the mother of Jesus. City Church has been reflecting on the life of Mary during the Sundays of Advent. Um, but the thing I think we need to underline here is that Mary said yes to God. She said yes. The angel told her, though you were a virgin, you will bear the son of the Most High God, who will reign over the throne of his ancestor David. And she replied, here I am, the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. She was thrilled. She ran to her cousin Elizabeth's house, rejoicing. It sounded like a party with good wine. Though, well, they were pregnant, so they probably had just, just a little. But our gospel today, I think, brings us closer to her lived experience. What it really meant to say yes to this. Now, that's interesting to state because you might have noticed she's not mentioned in Matthew's gospel. Uh, Luke tells Mary's story. You read that last week here, I believe. Uh, Matthew tells Joseph's story but this is an important text to understand her. But we have to use our imagination to do that. When uh, Fred and I, who are the same age, I'm six months older, but when we were little boys, do you remember the, uh, remember the television show with Walter Cronkite? You are there. <laughs> I, I, I love to say that and look in a crowd and people, I know there are people going, 
who was Walter Cronkite? <laughs> I, I know that's happening. But anyway, it was a TV show where you could, you could travel in time to be somewhere. That's kind of what we have to do with this text if we want to think about Mary. The 16th century Spanish Jesuit priest, St. Ignatius of Loyola, uh, he encouraged a practice that he called contemplation, which was to read scripture, but then use your senses in an imaginative way. See, hear, touch, make the gospel scene come alive, right? So where do we see Mary in Matthew's story? Well, there had to have been some painful conversations, right? Maybe she comes back after three months with her cousin Elizabeth, and there's a moment with Joseph <laughs> where it's apparent that something's going on. And maybe she used the proverbial, it's not what you think. Matthew, we know this. We know Matthew calls Joseph a righteous man. Now, that, that means he's a man of the Torah. He's a very devout Jew. Mary, from Joseph's perspective, just based on what we read in Matthew, he's convinced that she's committed fornication. That is, she has she is sinned outside their contract of a coming marriage from his perspective. And in Jewish law, under the Torah, this is a capital crime. Um, so Joseph sees it as his religious duty to end the relationship. But he loves her. So he decides not to accuse her publicly, just end things privately without humiliating or, frankly, endangering her. Still, when you imagine Mary, she must have been in terror for her life, of a life being alone, of being an outcast. Mary lives the life of so many women, of not being listened to, of not being believed. It's God who intervenes. And he intervenes, God intervenes in Joseph's dream. Where is Mary when Joseph is having his dream? I imagine her at her parents' home. Maybe it was one of those days where there was a lot of yelling, screaming. Maybe there was violence. There's accusation. We don't know. I doubt she's sleeping. I imagine her bundled up and weeping. I imagine her asking herself, what is happening to me? Am I crazy? Did I imagine all this? I imagine Joseph is having a fitful sleep, going back and forth between rage and heartbreak. And then comes the dream. What is the message? This is interesting. The message is don't be afraid to marry her. Now, afraid. Why would he be afraid? Well, remember, he is a devout Jew. He is afraid that God disapproves of his love. He's afraid that God disapproves of his desire to marry her. Joseph is still at a place in his religious space where he's afraid to trust his mercy instinct. And this is where the break, the inbreaking of the actual God, the inbreaking of the actual love of God comes in to say, no, this, this that you're drawn to, 
This is from the Holy Spirit. It was all foretold. And it's then we, that we get those two beautiful names, Emmanuel and Jesus. We'll talk about those in a minute. So I want us to see how Mary, in the shadow of this text, shows us, I think more clearly than anyone other than Jesus Christ himself, the nature of faith, the nature of what it means to trust in God. And I want to use two categories from um, two very great thinkers to try to unpack that. One from the great 19th century Danish philosopher, Christian existentialist philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, and the other from a contemporary womanist theologian, Kelly Brown Douglas. So bear with me. Let's kind of use their lenses to do this. First, Kierkegaard. I love the melancholy Dane. <laughs> I'll just tell you that. I don't know if you got him in your college philosophy class, but run if you've never read Kierkegaard. It's really worth your time uh, and effort. Uh, when I moved to New York City in 1989, I, I made friends with some fellow people who love Kierkegaard. And we met every week for several years uh, in a place called the Hungarian Pastry Shop. Anybody know the Hungarian Pastry Shop in New York City? It's at 111th and Amsterdam Avenue. We would meet after we would read Kierkegaard over complex ideas and simple car complex ideas, simple carbohydrates. <laughs> it was a, it's a beautiful, beautiful combination. Kierkegaard understood the mysterious inwardness of Christian experience, of spiritual experience, period. He thundered against the church of his day. And by the way, if you're at that kind of place where you're, you really have that desire to kind of, you look at Christianity and it's compromised, you want to burn it all down, Kierkegaard was way ahead of you on this. <laughs> he was already there uh, in the 1840s. He thundered against the Danish state church of his day, the, the congregations in Copenhagen, because of their laissez-faire state religion. He actually saw the church as the greatest barrier to a true encounter between the individual and the living God. The two people he saw in the, the biblical story who most kind of embodied what that encounter of true faith looked like were Abraham being asked to do this impossible thing, to make the ultimate sacrifice, and Mary. I want to read you something he wrote um, about Mary. This is uh, in, his, uh, in his book, Fear and Trembling. Who has ever been so great as that blessed woman, the mother of God, the Virgin Mary? But what we leave out is the distress, the dread, the paradox. See, none of that's in Luke, right? We leave that out. She is not a holy queen who sits in state and plays with an infant god. She's just an obscure girl, unmarried, mysteriously pregnant. No one else saw the angel. No one could understand her. Mary needs no worldly admiration any more than Abraham has need of our tears. For she was not a heroine, and she was, he was not a hero. But both of them became greater than such, not at all because they were exempted from distress, torment, and paradox, but they became great through these things. A paradoxical and humble courage, humble 
courage is required to grasp the whole of the temporal by virtue of the absurd. And this is the courage of faith. Humble courage is required to grasp the whole of the temporal by virtue of the absurd. And this is the courage of faith. Friends, what you see in Matthew's story is an unmentioned woman who shows you that an authentic life with God requires the humble courage of faith, of trusting when you are powerless to change anything, when you are drowning in distress and torment and paradox. That's faith. You know, in the... uh, in the Newbigin Fellowship, which was a ministry that was piloted a long time ago at Newbigin House, uh, we used to say, we are, I don't know who said it, but we used to say it all the time. I don't know who said it first. We are restored by being restoried. And notice that's exactly what Mary and Joseph are given in this moment through Joseph's dream. They're given these two names. They become a family. They marry. They immerse themselves in God's promises. Our child was prophesied by Isaiah. Emmanuel. Our child is the God of our ancestors. This is our story with God. God is with us. That's what that name means. Our child has been named by God. His name is Yeshua. Jesus. Or Joshua. They knew what that name meant, by the way. Uh, it's, that was the Greek, Jesus is like the Greek uh, version of a Hebrew name that comes from the divine name given, uh, revealed to Moses in the Old Testament uh, that we, we really don't know how to pronounce it, but we'll call it Yahweh, right, or Yahweh, people will say. It's that name plus the verb to save. The name Jesus literally means Yahweh saves. Imagine Trusting that, just that, this is the God of our ancestors. That God is going to save us. Trusting that while you and your, your poor family are fleeing from the most powerful person in your world, King Herod, who is out to murder your child. So let's make this about you. When you try to embrace the whole of the temporal, that is uh, your existence in time, your whole experience. When you try to embrace it in view of the absurdity of it all, and you don't need me to unpack that for you. Are you able to choose faith, to trust that love is at the center of all of this, to trust That hope is not a delusion. Are you moving towards the humble courage of faith? Or, honestly, are you moving away from it? You know, one of the ways you can tell where you are is by what's going on in your imagination. In your inward self, you can't fake it. The womanist theologian, Kelly Brown Douglas, says that Mary shows us faith leads to moral imagination. It leads to a moral imagination. Some of you would have been here. You heard the Magnificat, her song, uh, her imagination unleashed uh, in song last week from Luke's gospel. 
Uh, this is what Professor Douglas says about that. Mary's sung testimony of the hungry being filled and the rich being sent empty away reflects nothing less than a moral imagination where the world will be set right side up again. So what does it mean to be Advent people in this time, this our time? It means we must carry forth into the world as Mary did, a moral imagination. Grounded in the absolute belief that the world can be and will be made better. It will be just. A moral imagination disrupts any notion that the world as it is, is the way it should be, or ultimately is going to be. Mary, she shows us, really, in a way no one else does, Mary shows us the humble courage of faith. She endured the, she endured the terror of her betrothal, the paradox of her pregnancy, the awkward loneliness of, uh, shall we call it, special needs parenting of the son of the most high God. She, like so many black mothers, had the excruciating agony of seeing her child lynched, brutally crucified by the Roman state. But she would see him raised, raised to new life for her, for her, for her family, for her world. She humbly and courageously trusted. And that is what enabled her to see. What do you see? Amen. Let us pray. God of Advent hope, in Mary of Nazareth, the Blessed Virgin and Holy Mother of God, you show us more clearly than in any other human being apart from Jesus what it means to live in trust, to live by faith. As we work through our doubts in the face of the absurdity of evil, of the senseless suffering of this life, may we be able to follow her. Give us humble courage to hear your promises and shape our imagination to see what you are doing in the world and our part, our little part, to follow Jesus, the risen one, in the footsteps that lead to justice, healing, and peace. Amen.